you couldn't tell by Doug's announcement, Scott's not here today, so he's out of town. He's at a men's conference with about 60, 70 other men in our church. Um, they're in Ridgecrest. He'll be leading them in communion this morning. So we're gathered together um, to study the word. Um, we're taking a two-week break. Scott will be on vacation next weekend, and so we're taking a two-week break from our study in Mark's gospel. We're going to take a look at the life of John the Baptist. This actually fits kind of nicely, though, in the, in the study of John's gospel, or Mark's gospel. If you remember last week, we caught Jesus and his disciples in the middle of a very interesting theological conversation. They're descending the mountain. They had just seen Jesus transfigured. They're walking down the hill, and his disciples ask, why does Elijah have to come first? It was a very relevant question on the ground in the first century. Maybe we're not asking it today, but on the ground then, it was a very relevant question. You see, the last chapter in their Bible, Malachi chapter 4, the very last paragraph in their Bible, there's a prediction that Elijah would come before the great an awesome day of the Lord. And so the Jews were eagerly waiting for Elijah. It was a very relevant topic. Why does he need to come? Um, the disciples wanted to know what Jesus thought. And his response was stunning. If you remember from last week, he said, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased. Jesus was, of course, referring to John the Baptist. So John played a crucial role in redemptive history. He was prophesied in Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, Malachi 4. There's a lot of Old Testament text anticipating John because John would prepare the way for the Christ. He would be the Elijah to come and set the way straight for Jesus Christ. And yet, if I'm being honest, I don't think I've ever quite fully understood John the Baptist. He's kind of a mysterious figure, isn't he? He's kind of a little bit obscure. He lives this secluded life in the wilderness. He, he bursts onto the scene for just a couple of months. He baptizes Jesus and then he's gone. What else do we know from John? Um, it seems like when we look at the early days of church history, there's a lot more colorful figures that we can study, that we can actually gain from. If you think of Peter, James, and John, these are very flawed men, are they not? And yet, the Holy Spirit transformed these men to be courageous leaders that planted churches, that wrote parts of the Bible, and that died martyrs' deaths. That's incredible. We think of St. Paul. That's a life worth studying right there. The guy was on his way to kill Christians and, and in the middle of that journey, Jesus stopped him and said, no, 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 you're with me now. And he transformed Paul into the greatest thinker of the church's history. Those are lives that we want to study that we can gain from, right? But what about John? What did he do? He baptized people. He ate bugs, right? <laughs> what else do we need to know about John? That's about it, right? Over the next two weeks, though, I want to study the life of John the Baptist. We don't have a lot of information on him, but what we do is gold. John the Baptist is not only a key figure in redemptive history, he was quite the man. Jesus actually called him the greatest man that's ever been born. And so when Jesus says that about somebody, we should pause and pay attention and see what this man can teach us. Now, if you're worried that we're taking our focus off of Jesus and, and studying a human, don't, don't worry about that. Because when you look at John, you get Jesus. John's life in every element pointed to the Christ. And so we're gonna come away from our study of John appreciating Jesus far better. And may it be the same thing be said of our own biographies. You know, when you study that, that person, you, you get Jesus. That's what we get with John. So over the next two weeks, I just wanna look at two stories. Um, I'm gonna look at one this morning from John chapter three. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and make your way to John three. And as you're making your way there, I'd like to try to clean up some, maybe some misperceptions of, of John the Baptist. Um, maybe th these are just kind of confusions that I've only had, but I, I imagine some of you share the, the same confusion about John. As I said earlier, it, it feels like John is relatively unknown 
Um, it's actually not the case. At least in the 21st century, he may be unknown, but on the first century, John the Baptist was wildly popular. In the days leading up to Jesus' own ministry, John had launched a very successful ministry in the Judean wilderness. Matthew tells us that all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, and the entire region was flocking down to see John the Baptist. Now, if, you, if you're wondering why, what was so attractive about John that people would want to go, the answer is easy. He was a prophet. In fact, we probably shouldn't even think of John in terms of Peter, James, and John, but more of Elijah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. John identified with these men. They had read about these men over and over when they were children, but none of the people in Jerusalem and in the region in that day had ever seen a prophet. And so when they hear that a man in the south is dressed like Elijah and he's preaching a powerful, fiery message of repentance, everybody from the entire countryside floods down to see what's going on with John. And we saw something kind of like this happen this weekend. On Friday in Chicago, five million people gathered to see this Cubs World Series celebration. Almost, uh, go Cubs, anybody Cubs fans? There we go, all right. Did any of you go to Chicago, anybody? Five million people, that is the, I still can't believe that. That is the largest gathering in American history, right here. To do, to do what? To watch the guys hold a trophy, woo, right? And sing Go Cubs Go, right? What made people flock to Chicago, literally from all over the world this weekend? Well, they had waited year after year after year to watch their beloved Cubs lose again, right? They'd show up to the stadium, they'd lose. They'd go home, they'd show up, they'd lose, they'd go home. And nobody had ever seen the Cubs win the World Series until this year when they won it all. You have to think that something like this was happening with the Israelites as they waited and waited and waited for God to move. Year after year, they're leaving their seat open for Elijah and he hasn't come. But all of a sudden, there's a man dressed like Elijah. What are they gonna do? They're gonna flock down there to see Elijah and see what he might say. This should change then our perception of Jesus' own baptism. Again, I've had this view that Jesus is, you know, brings all of the crowds down to John to fulfill some Old Testament prophecy. That's not the case. Jesus had very humble beginnings. Remember, he was born in a manger, not in a castle. He was born, he, he grew up in Nazareth, not Jerusalem. Nobody had heard of Jesus. Everybody knew John. That is until Jesus made his descent down to the wilderness and was baptized by John. At that moment, Jesus was put on the map. This was the moment that transferred all the attention from John to Jesus. Do you remember that day? John is standing there and as he finally sees Jesus, he stops everything and you've got these massive crowds around him and he goes, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth. And as Jesus walks down there, John refuses. I'm not gonna baptize you. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. And Jesus said, it must be done. And so he baptizes them and Jesus, and you remember in that moment when Jesus comes out of the water, the crowds get to witness the triune God. As the Son of God comes out of the water, the Spirit descends like a dove and the voice of the Father says, this is my Son, listen to him. Unbelievable. From that moment on, the Son of God had come. Jesus begins his ministry. He gathers the crowds. But John's is practically over. That was it for John. 
He had diverted all the glory and the attention to Jesus and people actually responded and they left John and they went to Jesus. This is where I'd like to pick up the story of John's life because John is in a very vulnerable moment now. Everybody had left him. Not everybody yet. There's still a few people hanging around, but people are leaving John. His star is falling and he's at a vulnerable place. How would he respond? Let's read John chapter three, verses 22 to 26 this morning. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of the disciples and a Jew over purification and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So the story begins with John and Jesus in the same region again. Now, you have to remember that whenever these two men are in the same region, John goes nuts, literally. Like, even when they're in the womb. You remember this story? When, when John is in his mother's womb, Elizabeth, and when Jesus is in his mother's womb, Mary, they get together and what does John do? He leaps for joy at the sound of Mary's voice. So these two men can't be together without John getting excited. You saw what happened when he baptized Jesus. John just is overwhelmed with excitement and praise and glory to Jesus Christ. Well, this is a little bit different though. You see, Jesus had come and actually taken his ministry. Now Jesus is baptizing. John 4 tells us that Jesus never baptized, but his disciples had started baptizing and actually they were pretty good at it because the crowds started leaving. So now how would John react? How would you react? You, you've finally done something successful. The crowds come to you and then, and then somebody takes it away. Would he fight back or would he continue his praise for Jesus? Well, it seems like John's disciples wanted to pick a fight. Look at verse 25. They begin discussing, maybe arguing with a Jew about purification. Now, we don't know what that means, what they're exactly talking about, but it, it probably breaks down like this. That a Jew arrives on the scene and he sees two different ministries baptizing. Which one's better? Which one do I need to go to? And apparently all the crowds are going to Jesus. His disciples are worried. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Now you can imagine they're a little bit concerned. They'd been with him for a very long time and they don't want to see their beloved teacher fade. John, you're too important for this. You need to stop this madness. You are a man of God. You were prophesied in the Old Testament. You deserve better than this. Now this is a vulnerable moment for John. What human can resist that kind of temptation? These disciples were fanning the flames of his jealousy. How would he react? John was unfazed. He knew who Jesus was and he knew who he was. So instead of defending his own ministry and his own position, John, once again, consistent to his character, defends Jesus' ministry. Instead of inflaming um, his jealousy and, and his pride, he, he, he turns to Jesus and he grounds himself in the truth. And so he's gonna make three very stunning declarations that I want to explore this morning. And, and hopefully as a church, we can make these three declarations with John. So three powerful declarations. First, in verse 27, I don't possess anything. John, everyone's going to him. This is what he says. First off, verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. 
I don't own anything. It was all a gift. John wasn't scared to watch the crowds leave because the crowds were never his. He wasn't scared to watch his ministry unravel because his ministry was never really his ministry. It was all a gift. His success, his talents, his strengths, everything that he had ever received in his life came from heaven. It came from God. Now, if John had been raised with traditional American values, right, with these humanistic values, he would have had a hard time watching the crowds leave. You see, in America, we, we have come to live under this destructive assumption that we earn everything that we possess. It's mine. I worked hard for it. It's mine. We are a very entitled bunch. If the crowd had come to his ministry in the first place, well, that means he's doing something right. That's validation for what he's been working at, right? I'm sure John could have produced a couple of good books or a blog or filmed a documentary on the famous baptism or done something right to capitalize all of his success, but he didn't. In America, our gifts don't come from above. They come from within. We work hard and we earn everything. The philosopher Charles Taylor has said that we live in an age of authenticity. What he means by that is that like we, we, we believe deep down that everyone is intrinsically good and that we have all that we need inside of us. We have no other reference point but ourselves. And so you need to trust your own heart, follow your own beliefs, your own feelings, vocalize your own feelings. That's what needs to be trusted. I heard this week that the most famous song sung at American funerals is, not a hymn, Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. For what is man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the words he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. This is what people want sung of their lives. I did it my way, God help us. The self-centered, I did it my way, life has no reference point except the self. And that is a very exhausting way to live. You have to work for everything. And then once you get it, you have to work to protect it. You have to cultivate your own brand on social media so that the world will see how incredible you are and what you're thinking because that's what matters most. It's not. John the Baptist had a reference point outside of himself. It came from above And this declaration of truth allowed him to deflect all the glory to Jesus. John, everybody's leaving. Well, it wasn't mine anyway. I I can't think of a better declaration for modern Americans than this. I don't own anything. If we live under the assumption that we have earned our money, our body, our success, our business, our house, that's an exhausting life. But, But if... Everything comes from above. You can rest. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. John's second declaration is this. I'm not the Christ. So first, I don't possess anything. Second, I'm not the Christ. Listen to verse 28 and 29 again. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, John had to remind his disciples what he has been saying from day one. I'm not the Christ, he is. Now, this might seem like an obvious declaration, but for John and his disciples, it really wasn't. There were a lot of people that confused John for the Christ. 
Remember in Mark chapter eight, we just studied this. Jesus takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi and he gets up there and he asks them the crucial question, who do people say that I am? What was the first response out of their mouth? John the Baptist? <laughs> they thought that he was John the Baptist. Remember in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 14, when uh, Jesus' ministry finally gained some traction and, and people start hearing about him. Well, Herod hears about Jesus. Do you remember what Herod said? This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at, work, are at work in him. John had been so influential that the people actually wanted him. They actually thought he was the Christ. Can you imagine the pressures that John felt? People were placing their hope and expectation on him. And yet he gently turned them down by saying, I'm not the Christ, he is. I recently heard of a seminary professor who begins each one of his courses by having his students one by one come up to the front of the class and just say, I'm not the Christ. It almost sounds silly coming out of our mouths because we're like, of course I'm not the Christ. That's not, that's not who I am. And yet don't we live like it so many times? We need to vocally remind ourselves frequently, I am not the Christ. I am just a human. I'm confined to this body. I am confined to this place. I cannot save you. I know the one who can though. Jesus is the Christ. He is the hope of the world. That is the most liberating declaration that you can make. I am not the Christ. John reinforced this truth by employing a very powerful metaphor to help his disciples grasp this. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, just, he just rejoices. That's all. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John reinforced, I'm not the groom. I'm simply the friend. He was the best man. Now, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've seen a lot of glowing brides walk down the aisle. I've seen a lot of beaming grooms. And those are noteworthy. You remember that face, and you, walk, you drive home talking about that. You know what I have never done on the ride home from a wedding? I've never gotten into a discussion about the best man. Man, did you see that best man? He killed it. Like that ring placement was perfect. Bow tie, was that a new knot, right? Yeah, I'm never talking about the best man on the way home from a wedding, and that's okay. The best man plays a crucial role in the wedding, especially in first century Judaism. The, the best man presided over the wedding, and when a wedding went off without a hitch, he, was, he, was, he did his job well. He had a very crucial role, but he wasn't the groom, he wasn't the bride. He had a different type of joy. Now, if you've been in a wedding, maybe you've been on the lineups if, as a best man or as a groomsman, that's a great place to watch a wedding, is it not? Your friend whom you've lived with for years finally gets to see his bride coming down and I get to look at his face as he beams, as he glows, as they're excited about this day. I'm excited for them. Now, in that moment, I'm not trying to steal their joy. I'm not trying to deflect their joy, get people to look at me. No, 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 I'm just experiencing their joy. If anything, I'm gonna protect their joy as a good friend. John was not about to take anything from Jesus. He wasn't the Christ. He wasn't the groom. He was the best man. He was the friend that gets to rejoice in the Christ. And therefore, his joy was complete. Church, are we focused on ourselves? Are we standing in the place that only Jesus should stand? Do we get excited when we talk about our own work, about our own strategies? 
about what we're doing in the community or do we get excited when we hear about Jesus and what he's doing in the community and how he's changing lives? Do we point people to us and to our programs and to our ideas and to our conversations or do we point people to Jesus? That's what we need to do as a church. This is how we will be a joyful church. John's final declaration is this, I must decrease. In verse 30, he famously closes the conversation with these words. He must increase, I must decrease. John's disciples were worried that Jesus' ministry was flourishing and John was joyful that Jesus' ministry was flourishing. They were worried, he was excited. Jesus' ministry, according to John, had to, fl- had to flourish. He must increase. I think most of us would affirm this declaration. Let Jesus increase. Let him be glorified. Let him be prayed, praised. I'm not sure that we would take it as far as John did, though. He said, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. That seems a little bit unnecessary, doesn't it? Like, why couldn't he have just said, Jesus must increase and we'll increase with him? right, and make much of him all along the way. I think most of us are scared to decrease. It's a human fear. We're scared of being forgotten. And so we focus on the first part. You can increase as long as I can share in that. Let let me come along for the ride. It's very difficult for us to accept the possibility that maybe God wants us to decrease. Or John said, I must decrease. In a godless world, decreasing is death because only the strong survive. You gotta stand out. Again, it's such an exhausting way to live and yet has this philosophy seeped into our lives, into our churches? We can't be forgotten. The world may be scared of decreasing but the Bible actually teaches us to decrease. The Bible teaches us teaches us that the poor are blessed. The meek inherit the earth. The first will be last, the last will be first. You see, in the upside down kingdom of heaven, greatness is found at the bottom of the ladder. This is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. Church, we must decrease. We need to learn, like John, that obscurity is not necessarily bad. Don't be afraid of obscurity. Fame is not necessarily good. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're being faithful and that you're doing something right. When we understand this, we can say with John, he must increase, I must decrease. In the end, John watched the masses leave. These three bold declarations made him faithful, they made him great, but it didn't change his circumstances. The crowds continued to leave John. He watched Jesus' ministry thrive while his own ministry diminished. Is that what we want? Are we willing to make these three affirmations that I don't possess anything that has not been given to me? I'm not the Christ, Jesus is. I must decrease he must increase. Are we willing to make those faithful declarations from John? Because if we do, we might have the same experience that John had. We might actually diminish. We might actually be forgotten. 
That's okay. John was forgotten, and yet John was faithful. Jesus said he was the greatest man to ever live. May the same thing be said about us. May we decrease, may Christ increase. I'd like to end our time together and respond to John's very faithful statements. These are very difficult for us to process. So I'd like to end with a, with a time of silence. Uh, just as we respond to this, and as we do, I want John's most famous sermon to be ringing in our hear, ears. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There, there are times certainly where we have tried to do what only Jesus can do. There are times certainly where we have thought that we actually earned our success and earned our possessions. They are all a gift. We need to repent. There are times, I'm sure, when we have stood in the aisle and said, come to, come to me, I can help you. We must repent of this and deflect all the attention to Jesus. And maybe there are times where we refuse to decrease. We refuse to diminish. Let us repent of this and respond to the word. So I'm gonna have a time of silence here as we prepare our hearts for communion.